Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Father's Whole Family, No Exceptions Allowed, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 30th, 2006. Armatya Sin, Harvard professor and winner of the 1998 Nobel Prize in Economics, still remembers the day 63 years ago when Kader Mia stumbled into his family's yard in Dhaka, Bangladesh, bleeding from knife wounds and begging for help. His father rushed him to the hospital where he eventually died. Kader was a Muslim day laborer who was murdered by a Hindu thug and was one of the thousands of people who died in Muslim-Hindu riots that erupted in British India in the 1940s. Even though most of the rioters shared an economic class identity as disenfranchised poor people, partisans demonized each other with what Sin calls a singularist identity of violence that reduced their humanity to religious ethnicity alone. The illusion of a uniquely confrontational reality, writes Sin in his new book called Identity and Violence, had thoroughly reduced human beings and eclipsed the protagonist's freedom to think. One might even read Sin's new book as an extended exploration of this memory of his as a bewildered 11-year-old boy. Significant violence in the world today is fomented by the illusion that people are destined to what Sin calls a sectarian singularity. Stereotyping people with one singular identity, he argues, leads to fatalism, resignation, and a sense that perhaps violence is inevitable. Caricaturing people with a singular dimension partitions people and civilizations into binary oppositions. It ignores the plural ways that people understand themselves and obscures what Sen calls our diverse diversities. In particular, he objects to the clash of civilizations thesis popularized by Samuel Huntington. Sen argues against identity reduction and its consequent violence in three ways. First, he observes that all people enjoy plural identities. To understand a person fully and truly, you must consider a broad array of factors. Their civilization, religion, nationality, class, community, culture, gender, profession, language, politics, morals, family of origin, skin color, and on and on. Plus, these diverse, these diverse differences within a single individual depend upon their social context, whether the characteristic is durable over time or only temporary, how relevant it may or may not be in a given context, whether the trait is a function of constraint or free choice, and so on. Secondly, Sen urges us to transcend the illusion of destiny and identity violence by what he calls reasoned choice. Instead of living as if irrational fate destined us to confrontation with others, 
who are different, a person should make a rational choice about what relative importance to attach to any single trait. And third, sin appeals to our common humanity. As a friend of mine once put it, everyone laughs at weddings, cries at funerals, and worries about their children. More important than our many external differences, even though these are powerful, important, and often the source of good and not merely evil, is our shared humanity. Christians, too, have partitioned humanity into us and them down through history. But in his letter to the Ephesians this week, Paul makes a phonetic play on words that echoes sin's thinking. God, says Paul in the Greek, is the patera of every patria. In other words, the father from whom every family derives its name. Ephesians 1, 14-15 God is not the God of Jews alone or the God only of Christians, but rather the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, or as translators struggle to put it, the father of the whole human family, the patera of every patria. He is the God of Muslims, the God of Buddhists, and the God of atheists. In a curious phrase that I find more mysterious than obvious, Paul expands God's patrilineage even further in the Ephesians text to embrace, quote, every family in heaven and on earth, end quote. Conversely, just as God is every person's father, so every human being is God's child. To those who would partition people according to ethnicity, economic class, or gender, Paul writes that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Galatians 3.28 Peter learned that as an observant Jew, he had to welcome even a Gentile like Cornelius. Why? Because, quote, God does not show favoritism but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Acts chapter 10, 34 and 35. To those who limit God's lavish love to the morally upright, Matthew says that God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew chapter 5, 45. So then, whether gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Wiccan, wealthy entrepreneur whom you envy, or beggar bum on the street who repulses you, Paul quotes a pagan poet to affirm that every single person is God's offspring. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. The psalmist for this week rejoices that Yahweh is, quote, loving toward all he has made. Psalm 145, verse 13. As I thought about Paul's texts in Armatia Sin's new book, a phrase kept repeating itself to me, and it occurred to me that there's an internal logic to the Christian good news. Since God created all things in heaven and on earth, Colossians 1.16, seeks the worship of things in heaven things in earth and things under the earth, Philippians 2, 9-11, to 
since he intends to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, Colossians 1.20, and will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1.10, then of course God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 3.15. The psalm for this week makes this precise point. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 145 verse 9. In fact, the words all and every occur 18 times in Psalm 145, extending God's bounty beyond every human family to include the entire created cosmos. In his best-selling book, Velvet Elvis, Pastor Rob Bell of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, reminds us that the Christian gospel is good news about God's fatherly favor to every human being and to all of creation. As he puts it, quote, especially for those who don't believe it. The church must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, saved or not believer or non-believer. Besides the fact that these terms are offensive to those who are un and non, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we are to treat others. As the book of James says, God shows no favoritism, so we don't either. End quote. And I would add, no exceptions allowed. For further reflection, consider Sin never explains why people partition the world into us versus them. Why do we do this? Second, have you ever been outed or excluded when someone reduced your humanity to what sin calls a sectarian singularity? Three, how have you played favorites? Number four, Consider Terence, the Roman dramatist who lived between 185 and 159 BC. His famous quote, I am a man, so nothing human is alien to me. And finally, consider the brand new book by the Harvard professor Armatia Sin, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny from the year 2006. For books this week, I review The Bookseller of Kabul by Osne Seierstab, translated by Ingrid Christofferson, New York Back Bay Books, originally published in 2002, 288 pages. In November 2001, after the fall of the Taliban, the Norwegian journalist Asne Seierstad befriended a bookseller in Kabul who invited her to his home for dinner. Before long, they agreed for her to live in Sultan Khan's home for three months in order to write a book about his family. The result was The Bookseller of Kabul, an international bestseller translated into 30 languages and now the most successful nonfiction book in Norwegian history. It chronicles Seierstad's first-person narrative about her experiences of Afghan gender roles, education,
politics, religion, and culture. At first, Seierstadt thought she had met a remarkably liberated Afghan man. Sultan was an ardent bibliophile who loved books and ideas. This in a country where three-quarters of the population is illiterate. He had even amassed a collection of 10,000 books, including rare manuscripts that he had squirreled away around town. Sultan survived the Soviet communists and the Islamic fundamentalists and spent time in jail for anti-Islamic behavior. He despised the Taliban who burned his books. His family was wealthy by local standards. His opinions about women appeared liberal. He bought his wife western clothes in Iran and derided the burqa as a symbol of his beloved country's backwardness and oppression. But at home, Seierstadt discovered an altogether different sultan, and for the most part, her narrative reads like a cultural expose. She begins her book by telling the story of how Sultan took 16-year-old Sonia as his second wife, much to the grief of his first wife, Sharifa. At home, Sultan was an unapologetic tyrant toward everyone in his family. His two wives and daughters slaved away at cooking and cleaning. He consigned his 12-year-old son to sell candy in a dark and dank stall that the child called the dreary room. When a poor carpenter stole some postcards from his bookshop to feed his seven children, Sultan was merciless. The book alternates between describing the particular abuse in Sultan's home and the abuse and oppression that Seierstadt found in broader Afghan culture. A first grader, for example, learns the alphabet by memorizing the following. I is for Israel, our enemy. J is for Jihad, our aim in life. K is for Kalishnikov, we will overcome. M is for Mujahideen, our heroes. T is for Taliban. The bookseller of Kabul captures everyday life in a country ravaged by 20 years of war and characterized by deep cultural conservatism. In an ironic postscript to the book's wild success, Sultan Khan has sued Seierstad and her publisher for libel in a Norwegian court. He insists that his hospitality, his personal life was slandered, and that his family has been endangered. So he has, in good Western fashion, demanded what his lawyer has called redress and compensation. Asne Seierstad, the bookseller of Kabul. For film this week, I review The War Within from the year 2005. How does a normal Pakistani engineering student who graduated from the University of Maryland, then studied in Paris, become a suicide bomber with a plan to bomb Grand Central Station in New York City? The War Within tries to imagine one scenario through its main character, Hassan, who was kidnapped off the streets of Paris by Western agents, tortured in prison, and ends up in New York City as a radicalized Muslim. His friends there, Pakistanis enjoying all the forbidden pleasures of secularized America, barely recognize the new Hassan. 
Man, what has happened to you? asked his childhood friend Saeed. After their first grandiose terrorist plot fails, Hassan must decide whether and how he will still carry out a smaller, deeply personal mission. This is complicated, but not ultimately compromised by a love for Saeed's sister, Duri, that Hassan refuses to embrace or enjoy. Thus, his ultimate jihad, the personal war within his psyche, and how it will externalize itself in his actions. The War Within is a good film, but not as good as the Palestinian version on the same theme called Paradise Now. The War Within from the year 2005. And finally, for this week we've posted a poem by John Milton, who lived from 1608 to 1674. The title of the poem is considered, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, in that, in that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. John Milton, when I consider how my light is spent. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 30th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.